You're listening to TIP. Hey guys, I'm really excited to share an upcoming event hosted by the Investors Podcast Network. Beginning on Monday, October 17th, we're launching a stock pitch competition for you all to compete in, where the first place prize is $1,000 plus a year-long subscription to our TIP finance tool. If you are interested in this, please visit theinvestorspodcast.com slash stock dash competition for more information. The last day to submit your stock analysis will be Sunday, November 27th. And to compete, please make sure you're signed up for our daily newsletter, We Study Markets, as that's where we'll announce the winners. And all entries can be submitted to the email newsletters at theinvestorspodcast.com. Good luck. And then this is bubble 3.0, which I would argue is the biggest bubble of them all. In fact, I think it's, as you know, one of our little catchphrases is the biggest bubble in recorded human history. And it really hit peak insanity last year. On today's episode, I am joined by David Hay, who is a longtime investment advisor, and he's currently the chief investment officer at Evergreen Capital. David is also a financial author, and he recently wrote the book titled Bubble 3.0, History's Biggest Financial Bubble, and he gave our listeners a discount code, which is M-I-N-V-E-S-T-33. You can also find all of his financial writings on his website, Haymaker, and I'll make sure to link those both in our show notes. During this episode, David talks all about why he believes we are in the biggest bubble of all time, Bubble 3.0 how we got to this point, and why the Fed's policies such as the use of modern monetary theory, quantitative easing, and negative real yields have been large contributors to this bubble. We also dive into comparing today to past bubbles, and David discusses which prior bubble he thinks this period is most like, and what is different about this time. He also shares his thoughts on where we are in bubble 3.0 as of 2022, and why he thinks the worst is not over. He also shares a number of investments that he thinks are good to consider in this environment and so much more. We covered so many great topics in this episode. I know that I learned so much from talking with David and so much from his book. I definitely recommend going and checking that out, which I've linked in the show notes. And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I am joined by David Hay. David, welcome to the show. Well, Rebecca, thank you for the honor of being on your show and for reading my book, Bubble 3.0, in preparation for this. And I do want to point out that that, because it is important to our conversation, that we digitally publish that early in the year. And the reason I'm emphasizing early is because everything that's been going on since then as Bubble 3.0 has been in a rapid deflation mode. So that is exactly what I want to talk to you about today. You wrote a book titled Bubble 3.0 history's biggest financial bubble, who blew it and how to protect yourself when it blows apart. I read this in a weekend. It was so good. There was just so many things that I kind of want to unpack with you today. So I guess to start off, can you kind of walk us through why you think we are in the greatest bubble of all time and what got us to this point? Well, sorry to ruin your weekend, first of all. But I mean, I think there's a, there's a short answer, a really short answer, just a three letter word, Fed. The Fed did this. And I mean, they had some help along the way with some bad policies. But I think it's important to understand the connectivity between bubble 1.0, which was the tech bubble of the late 90s, really the first spectacular bubble in America since 1929. And then the second bubble, 2.0, which was the housing bubble that was kind of especially at a crescendo 05 to 07. And then this is bubble 3.0, which I would argue is the biggest bubble of them all. In fact, I think it's, as you know, one of our little catchphrases is the biggest bubble in recorded human history. And it really hit peak insanity last year. And the reason I say that is that's when you had SPACs going ballistic, NFTs, profitless tech, the meme stocks, of course, 
the cryptos. And, and when it comes to the cryptos, I think the one that just takes the cake, I think this was the signature event of Bubble 3.0 uh, was Dogecoin, which is the you know dodgiest of all the cryptos. And that's really saying something. It's got a lot of competition for that title. And yet it got up to an $88 billion market cap at one point last year, which is bigger than a lot of US blue chip companies. And it's worthless. Its creator said, what are you doing? This thing's nuts. There's no value here. Of course, it's crashed and so many of these things are down 80, 90%, including publicly traded companies that had large market caps. It's been an absolute bloodbath. And this is exactly what I was afraid of. It was what I was trying to warn people about early in the year. In fact, we actually ran one of our chapters uh, last October, basically on the European energy crisis that was already underway before Putin's tanks ever crossed the border. So yes, I think that it's been an epic period. And it's a culmination of 20 plus years of misguided Fed policies. Let's dive into some of those misguided Fed policies. You write in your book about modern monetary theory and the role that that played in Bubble 3.0. Can you talk a bit about that for our listeners, how that contributed to the bubble and just maybe what that is? Absolutely. And I think it it was probably the main helium injector into bubble 3.0 was MMT. And ironically, when I was first kind of creating bubble 3.0, the book, which I was doing installments in my newsletter back as far back as uh, early 2018, one of the things I wrote about, actually it was early 2019, I wrote about MMT. But even at that point, when I would talk to our brightest clients and I would say MMT, they would say, what's that? And that's how off the radar it was at that point. Now, shortly thereafter, it gained a lot of momentum. Bernie Sanders got behind it. Stephanie Kelton, uh, who was his economic advisor, I think his 2016 presidential campaign, was the very telegenic, very charismatic promoter of MMT as the solution to what a lot of folks have called secular stagnation, this idea that we're just in this low growth era and we can't get out of it unless we engage in something like modern monetary theory, which basically says that the federal government especially the U.S. government, since we have the world's reserve currency, can just spend money without any kind of budgetary restraints. Don't try to go through the whole budget process. If you need to spend money, just spend it. And of course, COVID created the perfect scenario for that. Initially, you could say, yes, it made sense during the earliest part of the COVID lockdowns. I mean, people were in you know, real trouble and you had to get them money quickly. But as the government so often does and the Fed is is notorious for that. They just keep doing the same thing over and over, like with QEs, the, the famous quantitative, or I should say infamous quantitative easings. QE1, 2, 3, it sounded like a bunch of ocean liner. And then QE4 actually happened under Trump kind of accidentally during the repo seizures of uh, September 2019. So that actually triggered another $100 billion a month of QE. But again, once COVID hit, MMT then basically it's, it's like QE on steroids. So it had its time in the sun and it kept happening. In fact, this is one of the most amazing factoids of this whole episode is that the Fed was still printing money, still doing QT as recently as this March, even after inflation had become a raging problem. Just like they were still buying mortgage-backed securities with, of course, what I call their magical money machine, this fake money they can create, even though the housing market was absolutely roaring. It was just absolutely, it was complete insanity. And yet the Fed just kept doing it. Of course, they kept interest rates down to very low levels. We had the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years uh, when they got interest rates to basically zero in the United States and negative. I know you want to talk about the negative part of it in Japan, but particularly in, in Europe. And one of the most amazing parts of that negative yield scenario was that mortgage holders in Denmark were actually getting paid by their bank. So you took out a mortgage in Denmark instead of paying the bank, the bank would pay you. I mean, how, how else in Wonderland, Wonderland is that? It's just, there's just been so many things that are surreal in this period we've been going through. So I want to touch on a few things there. There's a lot of kind of different Fed policies that have contributed to this bubble and they all kind of work a little bit differently, but they're interconnected. So the modern monetary theory as well as the QE. Can you talk a bit about how QE has been kind of destructive in the stock and bond markets and how that kind of works through the system? Well, it's a very good point because there is a, there is a distinct difference between QE and MMT. Because when QEs were first unveiled you know, over 10 years ago, actually closer to 12 years ago, there was a lot of angst at the time that that was going to create high inflation, even hyperinflation. But with QE, it's money being created by the Fed 
But that money basically stayed within the financial system. It really didn't get spent by consumers. It got it, it leaked its way into things like real estate and the stock market. You know, basically, risk assets benefited from QEs. But the real economy did stay, you know, very sluggish. But then COVID hits and MMT goes into you know full activation mode, and so the money then got directly sent. It had trillions of dollars being directly sent to people, and guess what? They spent it. Not all of it. There's still a lot of it's on the sidelines, which is an interesting point and why we could actually have a pretty good economic recovery coming out of what I believe is a recession that we're in now. But that's another story. But the reality is you did get a lot of spending. The Fed allowed the money supply to increase by 40% over about a year and a half period, unprecedented increase in the money supply. And you had a lot of economists and, of course, the Fed itself saying, don't worry, we're not going to get inflation. Or if we do, it'll be transitory. You know, that was the famous word that Jay Powell used repeatedly until it came back to haunt him. It was a very different application of extreme monetary intervention, a much more powerful way to get nominal GDP growing. And it did. I mean, we had, it's still hard having, even though we're having what is arguably already a recession, as you're well aware, the first two quarters of this year were negative from a real GDP standpoint, but they're still strong from a nominal GDP, like in the eight to 9% area. And as you know, that's what I believe is kind of the ulterior plan of the federal government is how to deleverage off this tremendous increase in debt that we've had 20 years, but particularly the last 12 or 15 years, ever since the uh, Great Recession global financial crisis, when debt has basically tripled in a relatively short period of time. It's shocking, frankly. On the debt aspect, you wrote in the book how it's been over, what was it, $6 trillion has been added to national debt in two years. How do you think that, what is the plan to kind of alleviate that going forward and what impact will that have on financial markets? Well, it's a great point. And I don't think anybody fully knows the answer to what the impact is going to be. Certainly, initially, the impact was very powerful, very positive. Because you had all that liquidity, which again, a lot of that tends to go into financial assets or even real estate. You know, we can talk about real estate because it wasn't just the US, it was a global phenomenon. So even with COVID, you had housing prices take off. They're already high even before the pandemic, and they went absolutely postal during the pandemic because you had these extremely low interest rates. And nothing benefits more from low interest rates or negative interest rates. I mean, imagine in Denmark what it was doing to housing prices to have people paid by the bank to buy a house. So a huge, huge global real estate bubble that is, by the way, in the process of popping. And actually, the U.S. doesn't look too bad in that regard. But you know, as far as what, how do they cope with that? I think the only way that the U.S. government can deal with it is much like what we did after World War II, because we had a fairly similar debt to GDP at the end of World War II. We obviously saved the world. That was a little bit more important than what we've done over the last 10 or 12 years, which is just really fuel asset bubbles. But nonetheless, I think it's kind of the same game plan. So in the late mid to late 40s and into 1952, because there was also the Korean War that happened in that period. So there were some really big deficits. There was some high inflation. And the debt to GDP got down fairly quickly from 1945, where it was about 115% to about 70% by 1952. So a very rapid paydown of debt relative to GDP. It wasn't actual debt paydown, but it was just the GDP grew a lot faster than the debt level. And the way that happens is by keeping interest rates well below the inflation rate. We've got a tremendous amount of pain in the financial markets right now because we've got the 10-year treasury. It touched 4% here the other day, but inflation's eight, a little bit over. So you've still got a negative 4% yield at current inflation rates. Now, that's where it's going to get really interesting is what is going to be the new normalized inflation rate. It's not eight. It's going to come down for sure. And I think there's a, you know, that's a pretty fascinating story of how we could be moving at least temporarily from a time of a lot of inflation anxiety into actually fears of deflation. And that seems ludicrous right now, but you've got people as prestigious as Jeff Gunlock, double lines bond guru extraordinaire saying that he thinks there are going to be rising deflation fears. Because when you get asset prices crumbling, even crashing, which is starting to happen, and certainly has happened for the you know what I used to call the crazy overpriced stocks, the cops. And the cops have truly crashed. And uh, when that happened in 07, 08, 09, uh, all of a sudden, because there was a fair amount of inflation back then, those inflation fears almost overnight flipped to deflation worries. So I think we could be in that kind of scenario again. The other thing that I want to ask you about the Fed is the Fed put. 
We've heard a lot about that this year. Can you talk about what that is and what impact that has on markets? Absolutely. It's huge. Interestingly, it didn't start just 10, 12 years ago during the global financial crisis. It actually started under Greenspan in 1987 when we had that market crash in October. And uh, in that one month, the S&P fell 30% from peak to drop. It rallied at the end of the month. But in one day, it fell 20%. I think it was October 19th, 1987. I remember it vividly. I've been in the business about eight years at that point. That belief that when... So what Greenspan did at the time was he flooded the system with liquidity. He just made sure Wall Street was just drowning in dollars to make sure that things didn't collapse. And then it kind of became institutionalized. And that's where, kind of like we're talking about with QE, you know, they say, okay, it's going to be temporary. We'll do QE1 and then it's QE2. And instead of being a one year during a panic, it turns out to be a decade long experiment. It's it, it, the Fed put is, I think, you know, that saying, where is that now? Does it still exist? Is, is it, and I think that was a question that you had on your mind. That's a brilliant question. And I think it's the multi trillion dollar question. Does that Fed put still exist? And I think it does. But what's different this time, and this is something that I actually warned about in my book and in my newsletters, that it's, it's probably got a much lower strike price or activation price than it had previously. Previously, it was kind of like down 2025 on the market. The Fed would then get into panic mode and reverse, which is what happened with Jay Powell back in 2018. You know, he was telling everybody in October how great things were and how he was going to continue to tighten and tighten and do QT and where they do the opposite of QE. And by early 2019, he did a complete 180. And then it wasn't too much longer after that. He was actually cutting interest rates. But here we're down 25% roughly on the S&P right now. We're down probably 35% from peak to trough on the NASDAQ, which is where so many people have had their money. And the Fed is tightening and tightening in big amounts. And the market's expecting the Fed to tighten another 75 basis points next month. And that's just, that's really never happened other than during the Paul Volcker war on inflation of the early 1980s when he took the prime rate to like 21%. And obviously, this economy can't handle anything close to that without crashing because you know, debt back then, just as a getting back to that debt to GDP, debt to GDP in 1979 was down around 25%. So in all those years after World War II up to 1979, all the inflation that we had and the economic growth got that debt down to a very low level. So Volcker had the ability to really hammer and you know, drive interest rates to levels that nobody thought they would, could possibly go to. And even though inflation was running about 12, he created like 9% real interest rates, unprecedented. And it worked, but it was very, very painful. Powell can't do that. There's, you know, with all these high levels of debt, not just in government, but, you know, in basically every, I mean, consumers are in pretty good shape. But companies, especially the weaker companies, have a lot of debt. And so there's a lot of concerns that we're going to start to see rising defaults. And you've got like 20% of the U.S. corporate bond market that's in zombie status where these companies don't generate enough cash flow to service their debt. So, and that was before interest rates really went up. Where is this Fed put now? I think it's probably down 35 to 40% on the S&P, probably down 50 to 60% on the NASDAQ. I think at that point, the Fed is in a real pickle because then you're probably creating or looking at an extremely severe recession. That, you know, then what happens to government deficits in a severe recession? They blow out, right? Cause you revenues go down, tax revenues go down, support payments go way up. And then they've got to sell a lot of debt to finance that. And if the feds is actually selling government bonds instead of buying, cause again, this is something that a lot of people are missing right now. Not only is the fed raising interest rates at one of the fastest rates ever, they're also now truly doing quantitative tightening where they're selling their almost nine trillion dollar government bond portfolio. So if they're selling and then the government's got to sell a whole bunch of bonds because of these exploding deficits in a recession, it becomes a nightmare scenario pretty darn quickly. So the question is, what does the Fed do at that point? And frankly, I think what they do at that point is what they did in March of 2020. And Rebecca, this is one of the craziest predictions I made prior to the, the pandemic was that, and I took a lot of heat from this actually, that the Fed was going to buy corporate bonds in the next panic. And sure enough, they didn't have people said, you're crazy. They can't do it. It's illegal. Don't worry. They'll figure out a way to do it. And they did. But the amazing thing, if you go back and look at the day after they made that announcement, that was the bottom in the bear COVID bear market, which was pretty scary. I mean, it went down almost, it was kind of like the crash of 87. The market went down about 38% and a little over, maybe even a little under a month. And then things turned on a dime because the Fed said, we are going to buy corporate bonds as needed. And frankly, it's something I said, I was telling my readers, because my newsletter started back in 2005, 
So in 2008, 2009, when we were in that meltdown or the global financial crisis, I was begging the Fed to not print money, but just simply borrow the money in the T-bill market at basically zero and buy corporate bonds. Corporate bonds, junk bonds were trading over 20% back in 2009. There was, you basically were looking at a corporate bond market that was as undervalued as it had been in 1932. It was way cheaper than the stock market was at that point on a relative basis, but they didn't do it. They, they, so instead of borrowing, they printed money. That was QE1 and they bought government securities, which were the most overpriced securities on the planet. They absolutely whiffed that opportunity. They could have stopped the financial crisis in its tracks in the fall of 2008 if they had done what they did in the spring of 2020. My point is, when they did that intervention for because of COVID, they only invested about $18 billion in corporate bonds. You know, out of all the trillions of dollars these guys threw around, only $18 billion. But it was just the idea that the Fed had said, we're not going to let the corporate bond market get destroyed, which it was in the process of being at that point. And it created an amazing rally. So they've learned from that. They go, hey, you know, of all these things that we've done, that had the, by far the best bang for the buck. So that's already in their toolkit. I think if things get really bad, there's another one of my crazy predictions. I believe they'll buy stocks. Lots of other com- countries have done that. And even Janet Yellen said back in 2016, they consider that one of their solutions. Buy stocks if things get bad enough. And here's where I think they can get around accusations of being inflationary because they have about $100 billion a month coming in from the maturing of the government bond portfolio. They do have the ability to say, okay, we're going to take some of those proceeds and use those to buy corporate bonds. We're not creating new money. We're just reallocating it. And I think that, I mean, it's a pretty extreme solution, but they've done it before. And I think that's what's coming. And that will be when the market, which I'm afraid could actually have another October crash, but I think that's when you're going to see a massive rally. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. 
A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. So a lot of people are likening this crash to 1970s, talking about the stagflation. But I guess, can you talk about why you think this is so much worse in that period? And I guess what is different about this period compared to the 1970 period? Well, again, I think the big one is that the debt levels are just so much higher. So the ability to really ramp interest rates up to a level that breaks inflation breaks a lot of other things too. Now, that's what Powell says he's going to do. He's really telling people, I'm not going to go down in history as the second coming of Arthur Burns. I want to be known as Paul Volcker 2.0. But again, Volcker had very low debt levels to deal with. I, I think this period is more akin to the 05 to 08 the whole massive housing bubble and all those crazy collateralized debt obligation CDOs, you know, where they packaged a bunch of subprime mortgages and then they diced them up into tranches. And and that whole thing almost crashed the system. And that's what brought AIG down because AIG was insuring those. And so they uh, they had a massive margin call that required the government to step in and rescue the largest insurance company in America. And these things were dropping like flies back then. There was a tremendous amount of contagion. I think the good news this time versus then is the banks are much better capitalized. Uh, they're, they're, I don't think that's going to be the problem. I think the problem is more likely the shadow banking system. A lot of this, this riskier lending or so-called investing that isn't happening through the traditional banking system because of all the regulations they have and restrictions on them, but it's happening in the shadow banking system. So hedge funds, for example, are actually considered to be part of the shadow banking system. And you may be aware that back in 1998, sorry, 1998, long-term capital, which was a big hedge fund, went down and it, it really shook the system at that point, required tremendous intervention. Uh, that was another example of a Fed put. But today, I think that you've got way more leverage in those, those areas. I think there's much more exposure to things going south and prices going down and more of these margin calls. And actually what's happened in the UK just this week is pretty fascinating in that regard where the UK pension system apparently is on the ropes because they're getting margin calls on their gilts. Gilts are basically their treasuries. And apparently they were using swaps and all these, you know, there's just so much convoluted derivative stuff out there, just like there was back in you know, 14, 15 years ago during the global financial crisis. So that stuff starts going haywire. And it can really feed on itself. So I think shadow banking system is a big risk out there. I also think that dysfunction in the treasury market is another kind of underappreciated risk from what we talked about, where, you know, how, are, how is the, the federal government going to be able to raise money at an affordable rate? Because we know they've got so much debt, it's really hard for them to finance in an open market with, you know, fair interest rates. And for so long, it's been, the rates have been artificially suppressed. As the debt has to be these, and then you got the entitlements too. Don't forget, you know, that we now have something like $2.6 trillion a year of entitlements that need to be funded because we so stupidly didn't put real assets into the Social Security Trust Fund. And that's a whole other topic we could talk about. I think that's personally one of the greatest policy blunders ever made was not putting real, you know, say corporate stocks and corporate bonds rather than more government IOUs into the Social Security Trust Fund. So just a lot of stuff. Then you got, as I mentioned earlier, and I think, again, this is not really getting the attention it deserves. It looks like there is a synchronized sinking going on of, of housing markets around the world. And Canadian, your, your, your country, we're, you're sitting up in beautiful Kelowna on gorgeous Lake Okanagan, but your country has a huge housing bubble, much more so than in America. And our prices, our housing prices are nutty enough. I mean, they're way above where they were in, uh, in 2008, 2007, 2008. You said, well, there's been some inflation, but even inflation adjusted, they're higher than what was supposedly the biggest housing bubble of all time. But Australia is worse. New Zealand's worse. A lot of Northern European countries are worth worse. And then you've got the Chinese real estate market absolutely imploding right now. And, and there's a lot of stuff going wrong simultaneously. And yet a Fed that seems to be focused on two things. And unfortunately, they're two of the most lagging economic indicators you could ever pick, which is number one, inflation. Because inflation is clearly a lagging economic event. And then the jobs market, which also is very lagging. So with them concentrating on those and ignoring all these kind of leading things that are going the wrong way, it's scary. 
It's very scary. I'm sure we could have an entire conversation on kind of those Fed policies and just how they're impacting markets in of themselves. But you covered so much there. And I want to touch on the housing market with you now, because you mentioned that you think this period is more like the 2005 to 2008 period. And you also mentioned in your book how collateralized loan obligations surged to highs in 2021. So I'm just wondering, is that similar to what happened in 0809 with the CDOs? And I guess, do you see a similar crisis today in the mortgage lending space? Probably not in the mortgage lending space. And while I think CDOs and CLOs are similar, they are different. So the the difference is CDOs were made up of mortgages, mostly those subprime mortgages that were sliced up into different tranches or layers, slices, whatever you want to call them. The risky ones got wiped out right away. But what really almost brought the system down at the time was the AAA rated ones fell down to like 40 cents on the dollar. That was never supposed to happen. And even under a worst case scenario, they were worth probably 90 cents on the dollar. But you just had this, it was basically a global margin call and the selling fed on itself during that period of time. There was just really no buyers, even though it was one of the greatest opportunities of all time to buy what was still really AAA rated paper at enormous discounts. That's why the Fed should have been in there preventing that from happening because they also had this crazy rule back then. And it was a fine rule under normal circumstances, but in a crash, it created an absolute death spiral. And I think it's FASB 157, which required the banks to mark to market on their, like their CDOs. They were thinking these things are you know, bulletproof. And so now I've got to take a 60% hit on what I thought was AAA rated and that I have a ton of. Virtually every, doesn't matter how strong the bank was, it was technically broke in 2008, early 2009 at the worst of the, of the collapse. That was systemically shaking up. Now, CLOs are, are loans. So they're basically two corporations. And typically they're junk loans, but they're, they've got oftentimes senior status. So they get paid ahead of when bonds get paid. So they have some inherent advantages, but they're, uh, yeah, I mean, there's tremendous stress showing up. And one way you can see that stress is looking at the triple C junk bond markets and kind of the junkiest of the junk bond market is yielding 16%. At the beginning of the year, it was 8%. So that is an enormous increase. Now, with triple Cs, because they have such a high default rate, you have to take off like 6% as a you know, reasonable estimate of what you're going to lose per year because of defaults, even net of recoveries. So the, the default adjusted interest rate is more like 10, but it's still a very big number. And it, you know, I, I loved your uh, your podcast that you did with Pim Van Vliet, if I'm saying his name right. And he was talking about this, that this kind of weird thing where he's got, you know, I love his strategy, by the way, I think it makes total sense. But he's saying, well, gee, you really shouldn't be able to get high returns with reduced risk. If you're taking, if you're going to get high returns, you should be taking a lot of risk. And he's saying that doesn't work out that way a lot of times. And I think this is a good example with when you think about triple C rated bonds, which are probably down 35, 40% this year, which is why the yield has gone up so much. So now you're getting a 16%, you know, forget the defaults, but 16% nominal yield and your, your bonds are discounted significantly. So they have a lot less risk today than they had at the beginning of the year. And so it's just, that's just a bond market example of exactly what he was talking about. So anyway, I'm kind of going off on a, a tangent, but I, I do think that was a great podcast you did with him. Thank you. I love that one. I want to talk to you about the bond bubble, but I have one more question about the housing market, just because like you mentioned, we have seen such a surge in home prices post COVID. I'm feeling it in Canada. Everyone's feeling it globally. I guess what's your outlook kind of from here? Do you see it having a similar path as maybe the stock market correction or is it going to lag a bit more? What are your views on that? My view is that the U.S., once again, is in better shape comparatively. One of the reasons for that is that unlike America, where people typically have long-term fixed-rate mortgages, so there really isn't a major impact to people of interest rates going up like they are. I mean, it's clobbering new transactions, sales of existing homes or new homes, and, and refinancings, of course, have imploded. But it really doesn't hurt the most homeowners. That's very different overseas, including in your country, which is not overseas, just over the border, that you have largely adjustable rate mortgages where they will adjust very quickly, like over a three-year period. And some of those are starting to roll into a, you know, a reset period. These homeowners uh, are going to get really shocked by their new mortgage payments. And at the same time, especially in Europe, but in North America, energy costs are going up significantly. 
uh, particularly electricity. But, you know, Europe is just a nightmare. Uh, the price of electricity there recently got up to a thousand, the equivalent of a thousand dollars a barrel of oil. Now it's come down significantly, but it's still very, very expensive. Natural gas is still very expensive. It's more like about $300 a barrel of oil currently, maybe 280 Europe's got it. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've read these horror stories. So you have that happen at the same time that these mortgage rates are getting reset up. It's really a, a very dangerous situation. Another reason why I think that you know, we're going to have a global recession and it's probably going to be a, a rough one. So do you see that kind of happening in 2023? I guess we talked about kind of how you wrote this book. You started writing it in 2019, right? Actually, I started writing it in 2018. And it was really related to the Bitcoin. It was focused on the Bitcoin mania at that time, which you know, Bitcoin did go down 80% after that, you know, when I called it out. But then, of course, after COVID, it went absolutely ballistic. And COVID had such an impact on things because of all that MMT that it created. So it just inflated, you know, whether it's housing prices or cryptos or, you know, just the long list art. It just had an immense effect on asset prices around the world. So it, it like took what was already a pretty alarming bubble and just made it truly epic. When you started writing this then, interest rates were really low. And I guess now in 2022, we have seen massive hikes. Prices and equities have gone down quite a bit. So I'm just wondering where you kind of think we are in this bubble 3.0. Has it started to pop? Where do you kind of see us going forward over the next near term? And then maybe which assets do you think are still in the biggest bubble? It's a goner. I mean, it's not a question of, you know, when is it going to pop? It's going to, it's more like a question of when is it going to stop popping? I mean, this has been. And this is an amazing fact. I know that I exchanged some emails on this, but this has been the worst wealth wipeout ever. I mean, more than COVID, more than the great financial crisis. I mean, I guess the only other time would be com- that would be comparable would be the 1930s. And it's because typically when you have a bear market in stocks, bonds go up. You know, they have that counterbalancing effect. And that was one of the points I was making in my book. Uh, early in the year, again, before this really played out, was that the traditional balanced portfolio was not going to lessen risk, it might magnify it because you're going to lose money on bonds and stocks. And then you throw in cryptos, which got up to about a $3 trillion market cap. And now they're down to about a $1 trillion. So it's been $2 trillion loss on cryptos, which not, not a lot of older folks like me have, but I think a lot of your contemporaries probably were dabbling in cryptos. And, and then you've got real estate, which is now starting to fall. So people are just getting pounded from every direction. And that's why I think that... And it's amazing in, in this regard that I don't see a lot of panic out there right now. In fact, if you, well, institutional investors are quite conservatively positioned. And I think you could say they have pretty bearish sentiment, which should be bullish, right? When people, when most investors, even the professionals are really bearish, that's kind of a contrarian buy signal. But where you haven't seen that is with smaller investors who have continued to buy. No capitulation whatsoever. And nobody going, I just don't hear the hand-wringing or the focus on what I just said, that this has been the worst wealth wipeout ever. There's just a kind of a remarkable complacency considering the damage it's been done, which is another reason I don't think it, the worst is over, unfortunately. So do you think that we would have to start seeing kind of those retail investors starting to sell first? Because it is interesting how, yeah, you're right, we haven't, we haven't seen that in the markets yet. No, we sure haven't. And I think that's got to happen before we have a really durable bottom. But uh, I did answer your question about what assets benefit. And another thing to be aware of why this year has been so painful is what's happened with the dollar. And that's something I totally whiffed on. I did not think the dollar would have this kind of appreciation. Michael Cow, the urban cowboy, has called it the wrecking ball dollar. And I think that's a very apt way to describe it. So as the dollar's gone up, it just it's it's crushed a lot of assets, which frankly are good things to hold in a world where kind of we're running out of the ability for fiat currencies to be created at will to constantly paper over these various problems that we've got, and and that's why the Fed put isn't happening right now is because the inflation's running so high, it's kind of got them the Fed particularly, uh, but I think all the other central banks are in a, in a real bind. I, as I often said, they've printed themselves into a very tight corner. But the dollar going up has hurt recently energy prices, which are still very strong. That's been one of our better calls is to be overweight energy because it has done so well this year. Did great last year. In fact, the last over the last two years, it's up 165% versus the S&P up 11. 
And two years ago, nobody wanted to touch energy. It was you know, considered to be uninvestable. Uh, but things like gold miners, which were phenomenal in 2020 coming out of COVID, have been crushed. Aluminum producers have been crushed. Copper producers and copper is going to get tremendous demand for EVs. There's going to be an, an acute copper shortage eventually. But right now, economic fears and the strong dollar are just trumping all that. Emerging market bonds, have, some have done okay, but a lot of them have come down really hard. The dollar truly has been a wrecking ball. But I think that's the good news is that it's really depressed a number of these asset classes that should do very well if you believe, as I do, that eventually the Fed's going to have to relent. They're going to have to, first of all, pause. Then I think they'll do something like we described with buying corporate bonds with some of their portfolio runoff. And I think before too long, they'll have to start cutting interest rates. Because if you get, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate, if you get a true market crash, then inflation just kind of goes away almost overnight. And people really do start worrying about deflation. I think we're going to have a crescendo before too long here. What do you think is driving such the strength in the dollar? Because as interest rates go up, there is kind of that historical correlation where exchange rates, it should go up a little bit. But why is it rising so much? Another really good question on your part. It's tough to give you a definitive answer. I mean, I've got some suspicions. And I believe that there has got to be some kind of massive short position out there in the dollar. I hear a lot about the euro dollar market, which I'm the first to say I don't understand very well. You probably know more about it than I do. And we're partnered with GovCal, which has got a great GovCal research. It's not well known to retail investors, but among institutional investors, they've got a tremendous following. And, and even they're kind of perplexed by what does it really mean? And my partner, Louis Gov, believes that the short position is more in the US rather than overseas. I don't know. But it's, I, in my career, I've never seen a situation where you have so much inflation and you have so you've had exploding inflation, we've had exploding trade deficits in the US, record-breaking trade deficits, and yet the dollar's been on fire. That just doesn't compute. And that's what I missed is that I, because I, I believe that on a long-term basis, what you want to do, and this is stealing from my buddy, Grant Williams, who steal, stole it in turn from Tony Deaton. I don't know if you know Tony, but a brilliant man based in Switzerland. And he says, invest in scarcity. And what is it scarce? Well, it's certainly not fiat currencies that have been produced in trillion dollars just at will by the central banks. It's certainly not in the government bonds that are basically just another form of fiat currencies. So I think you want to own things which are truly scarce that can't be printed and which are going to have unusual demand drivers. And, you know, copper is an example, but I think we're in a long term. This, this is where it would be similar to the 1970s because there are some parallels with the 1970s. And the energy, kind of the chronic energy shortages, the recurring energy shortage of the 1970s, I think is what we're seeing today. Obviously, Europe is just in a horrible situation, but it's not just Europe. I mean, China is short of oil. They consume a lot more oil than they produce. Now, I know they're going to get a, a lot of cheap Russian oil, so that helps them. But Japan is short of oil. Even America is short of oil because only because of our SBR releases. So as you know, uh, the Biden administration has been releasing a million barrels per day. That's a lot. So they've got the SPR down to just rock bottom levels, alarming levels. And then, of course, Europe's got a huge energy shortage. So at some point, and actually what's happening in Europe is pretty fascinating because they are correctly switching over a lot of their electricity production where they can burn oil instead of natural gas or coal. It's never happened before because oil was always more expensive than coal and gas, but now it's flipped. And so they rightfully are, are preparing because you can also get oil over to them quite easily. It's a lot easier to get oil from America or Canada to Europe than it is natural gas, which has to be you know, cooled down to like 270 to minus, minus 270 Fahrenheit and ship it over there, then regasify it. And they don't have a rigid pipeline network, but oil, you can get it in all those different ports. And but amazingly, the, and I've written on this a lot, but it's just, it stuns me that these big energy buyers in Europe are not taking advantage of this crash in oil prices that's happened lately because of economic fears. Putting that stuff aside, Oil demand is running very strong, even though the global economy has been, you know, kind of cracking here for a while, over 100 million barrels a day. And a lot of that is about 100, sorry, about a million barrels a day of additional demand is coming because of fuel switching that I just described. Then you're going to have the SBR going from selling to buying. That's going to be about a million and a half barrel a day swing. I think these oil prices down around 80 are silly. I think they're going to have a major up leg and that's not going to be the greatest thing for the global economy either. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. 
The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I was going to ask you about that because you said you were investing in energy companies and they've just appreciated so much to maybe the point of if you didn't get in last year or the year before, it's maybe overvalued now. But I guess you still think that over the next few years, there's going to, there's just so much demand and lack of supply that we could see potentially, I guess, better price run up. There's still more to come. Well, I got to believe PIM is all over these because the free cash flow yields are enormous. And there has been since roughly June 7th, I think it was the, the pivot date, energy stocks have been just, a lot of them are down 40%, even 50%. So there's been a tremendous sell-off. And yet they're generating these, these enormous amounts of excess cash and in many cases paying really large dividends and buying back shares and paying down debt. And what they're not doing is investing in producing new oil and gas. I mean, they're doing a little bit of it, but not a lot. You still have this tremendous crash that's happened in capital spending in the oil and gas industry. And, you know, they're under tremendous pressure from ESG and try to get a pipeline built. I mean, it's one thing, you know, find the hydrocarbons, you got to get them to market. And this whole amazing standoff over the Mountain Valley pipeline in Pennsylvania and West Virginia, it's just that thing's like 95% built and they still won't get it completed. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think you're just going to see this chronic shortage of energy because of underinvestment for a variety of reasons. And yet the need for it is still going up. And you, know, you look in Europe right now, it's, what's fascinating is do a Google search for wood, chopping wood in Germany. I mean, it's just nuts what's happening in Europe right now. And they also, for getting chopping wood, they also are using wood pellets produced in the United States, but even in parts of even in Eastern Europe where they're clear cutting these old forests to produce wood pellets that they can then burn to produce electricity. And that's actually more polluting even than coal. So some of these, unfortunately, this is what I've called the uh, the great green energy transition, which then leads to greenflation. I think greenflation 
is going to be one of our persistent inflation drivers over the next 10 years. So even though I think that you're going to have a temporary decline, just like you did in the 70s, just getting back to your 70s comparison, uh, there were times where the inflation rate fell drastically, even in the 1970s. But then, boom, it came back up again. And because we had a lot of energy inflation even back then as well. Do you think that, I guess, energy prices kind of will be a, still a big and the main contributor to inflation over the next year then, as you see prices kind of going up? Yes, I think that will be one of the persistent inflationary forces. But you can get these periods where, because of just like what's happening right now, fears of demand destruction are driving down the price of paper oil. You know, there's the paper oil market, derivatives and futures are, are like, it's like 45 times the actual physical market, which is already huge. So when you get an avalanche of selling of these paper instruments because of demand destruction fears, even though they're greatly exaggerated, it creates these kinds of price declines. So it looks right now like we've actually got some energy de- deflation in the U.S. But again, I think that's going to turn around over the course of the next year, maybe even sooner than that. So yes, I think that is going to be a persistent inflationary forcing. Uh, but you've also got reshoring where we're moving away from just in time inventories to just in case. And as people want to, or companies want to have more inventory on hand, but they're also relocating from lower cost venues to a higher cost. And one of the amazing factoid I saw here recently is Japan. Japan labor costs, probably because the yen's crashed, are actually lower than China's. So there's going to be opportunities. And I actually think the Japanese stock market is, is a fascinating play at this point once we get through, through the worst of this global recession. Uh, their market, of course, has gone nowhere for 33 years, 32 years since 1990. I guess I'm wondering, where do you think there is going to be return over the next decade or so? I know you wrote in your book, used to be a bond bull, and then while well, interest rates were so low, but then you switched to hard assets. Can you talk a bit about that and maybe, yeah, where you see the yield going forward? Well, yeah, I think you're going to have to think differently. What has worked for the last 10 years, even the last 40 years, is not likely to work going forward. However, I mean, there's been so much damage done. When I wrote my book, that was very true, and it was a very good warning, but I mean, things have changed. We are getting a valuation re- restoration process going on in the U.S. financial market, global financial markets. But in general, I think you're going to have to invest in non-U.S. equities, you know, with some exceptions. I mean, obviously, energy is an area that looks really attractive, and a lot of the other hard asset plays in the United States. but some of these mega cap tech stocks, which is where the money has been made for so long, I just and I don't I don't think they're going to produce much in the way of returns. They'll probably be doing okay just to kind of go sideways. So overseas, and I and I do think at some point emerging market debt is going to just be a terrific return that's been hammered. And you've got countries like Indonesia where they've got a, actually pretty healthy fundamentals and uh, actually an inflation rate that's below uh, the U.S. and in much higher yields even than we have currently. But I would look to just getting back to that theme of scarcity. Where is there scarcity? And I brought up copper before. I think fertilizers are an interesting play because if natural gas is going to stay high kind of long term, which I think it will, it'll fluctuate. But in general, I think the trend is up in the U.S. Now, Europe's different. Prices are so high over there. Uh, I'm not saying they're not going to correct over there. But you know, if you look at summer natural gas, summer next year, natural gas in the U.S., it's rated $5. That's a heck of a bargain relative to the rest of the world. And that does relate to fertilizers because fertilizers use a lot of natural gas. And so, yes, I think there's a number of areas to emphasize. And again, I'll be focusing on those that have been crushed because of recession fears. And there are a lot of those. I'm wondering, what do you think about gold? I know that some would expect it to perform better than it has over the year. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a good safe haven asset right now? Oh, boy. Yeah, another one of my not so good calls, though we did take profits on it earlier in the year, because it did, you know, there was a time where the gold miner ETF was up 25% this year, even though the market was down about 10 at that point. But since then, again, this wrecking ball dollar has just destroyed, especially the mining stocks, but even gold has been weak as well. But it is interesting if you look at it in other currencies, it's been a good store of value. It's done, you know, if you're a yen investor, if you're a pound sterling investor, a euro investor, gold has been a pretty good place to have your money. In a world where almost everything has gone down in price, it's it's actually gone up in most of those currencies. But in the U.S., again, the wrecking ball dollar has been just really tough on the price of gold for American investors. So I think that's why it's so critical to be thinking about when does the dollar peak out and reverse. 
And I do think it's it's kind of like I was feeling about the crazy overpriced stocks last year. The higher they go, the worse they're going to come down. I think the more the dollar goes up, it's, it's already very expensive, way, way overpriced on a, what's called a PPP, purchasing power parity basis. At some point that matters. And, and there's really nothing more mean reverting over time than currencies. Because when your currency gets really expensive, then people don't really want to buy your products. And so that tends to make your trade deficit worse, which is already terrible. So at some point, that, that's really going to be the key thing, I think, for the financial markets. When does the dollar turn down? When does the dollar break? When the dollar breaks, a lot of things are going to go screaming higher. A lot of these hard assets that we just talked about, but even a lot of these emerging markets and other overseas markets, a high dollar is basically is telling us that we've got a global liquidity crisis underway. And I think we really do. And as I said earlier, a few times, I think we're getting close to where it, it just kind of gets to the grand finale, like a you know, fireworks display. I want to also ask you about bonds because typically millennials don't think about adding bonds to their portfolio. But I guess as we kind of write about in your book, how bonds were kind of the biggest bubble in the biggest bubble of all time when interest rates were low. But now that they've been rising, yields are spiking, prices are decreasing. Do you, when do you think is maybe a good time for millennials to consider buying some? Well, I'd say we're probably pretty close to that. I think it certainly makes sense to be kind of gradually dipping a toe in and buying some of these. Uh, we particularly like double B, well, triple B minus to double B, but where the best value tends to be is with double B rated bonds. So those are the ones that are right below investment grade because they typically have very low default rates, less than 1%. And you can get six, seven, eight percent with those types of bonds right now and with kind of intermediate term maturities, not, you know, 30, 40 years. But I think we're getting to a point with some of these types of instruments where you want to actually be going further out, you know, what they call extending duration, going at longer maturities because you want to lock, if you're getting 8% yield and Ford Motor Credit, Ford Motor, the parent company as well, their, their debt is trading at like 8% yields. And so when you're getting that kind of a yield, I think you want to lock it in for a longer rather shorter time. So much of what we've done recently for our clients has been be short term because we thought rates were going to rise, which they obviously have. Be floating rate, because if you're in floating rate instruments, then you're getting a rate increase as these rates go up. But I think we're getting to the end of that game. I think it's time to start reversing that and extending maturities, extending duration. Uh, but I, you know, I'd rather do the credit analysis and get a 6 or 7 or 8% yield and buy a 10-year treasury at you know, 3.8 or wherever it is today, somewhere around there. Well, I just say, I think millennials can do that. And if you don't want to pick the individual bond, because it's really tricky to do bond investing as a retail investor. But there are some funds out there, ETFs that are really effective in that. PHB is one that looks attractive. ANGL, which is the fallen angel. That's a lot of double B rated bonds. We like that portfolio. And then, um, oh, the mortgage-backed security has been absolutely crushed. So Vanguard's got the VMBS. And that yield is probably going to wind up being in the 5 to 6% range here relatively soon. But anyway, there's, those are a few ideas that you can do pretty easily with, uh, you know, just with a Schwab account. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it's kind of hard for us to maybe wrap our head around how to get exposure. That's a whole nother universe, like you mentioned about bond investing. Thanks for sharing those. I also want to ask you, I think our last question for the day will be about the passive index bubble. So you wrote about this in your book, and I just thought this was fascinating because I hold ETFs as a part of my portfolio. I think a lot of our listeners have a portion too. I was so interested when I read about this chapter and where you see the major problems with the passive indexing and kind of the bubble it's created. Can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. So indexing works great in bull markets because with a typical index fund, in fact, I don't know of one that's different than this, they don't hold cash. So you're fully invested all the time. And you also get this kind of amplification effects. Let's say it's what we had for so many years, the fangs. Facebook and Amazon and Netflix and Google. And sometimes you would throw Microsoft in there too. But really those, those mega cap tech stocks just kept going up and up and up. And so the index funds, by definition, have to buy more of them because they just simply replicate. So if Microsoft goes from 2% of the index to 5% of the index, that index fund is going to have 5% of its portfolio in Microsoft. So as it gets inflows, those inflows go disproportionately toward those mega cap tech names. And so again, it just kind of feeds on itself. But then it leads to you know, extreme overvaluation, which is what we saw when you know $2 trillion market caps. I mean, that becomes pretty hard to justify, even for a truly great company. Uh, and then prices start coming down. 
And where, where it's going to get ugly is when you get the opposite of the persistent inflows and you actually get outflows. Like we were saying earlier, there hasn't been that fear yet. There hasn't been capitulation. So if you start to get big outflows from those index funds and they've got to start selling those, and who's going to be on the buy side? I mean, you're talking huge amounts of capital and these big positions that really nobody has the ability to take off their hands. So it's, it's worse than being price insensitive. It's more like, you know, the bigger the price, the more we have to buy. We have no choice. And, you know, it's just, it's a no think approach. And it, it actually happens with bond uh, indexes as well. There are passive bond funds out there too. And there it's really silly because you're putting more money into the most heavily indebted companies because they have the most debt outstanding. So if you're trying to replicate, you know, that means you're going to have the most exposure to the most heavily indebted companies, which is not what you want to do really. So this, this is whole idea that you don't have to think that you can just ride the wave of, of the indexers. It's, you know, I, Milton Friedman said there's no free lunch. And if you're going to go that way, it's certainly cheap and it does works great in bull markets, but in bear markets, I think it's just a disaster in the making. And I think we're seeing it unfold before our eyes. So yes, you can tell I'm not a fan, especially at a time like this. So then what do you think investors can do? They just have to be more active with their approach and pick the winners. This is the time to, I guess, pick stocks more than ever. Well, I think so. You know, I think you want to look at areas where most investors are underweight, precluded, and where the fundamentals are strong. And I can't think of any area that's more representative of that than energy, where just so many people say, I won't buy it because it's, uh, you know, it's environmentally harmful. And I think that's simplistic. And I think you're leaving a tremendous amount of return on the table to believe that. But I know that there are people that feel very strongly about that. And, but if you look at the United States, we have improved our air quality by 75% over the last 50 years. And we've largely done that by shifting from burning coal to using natural gas and renewables. And I certainly think renewables have a place in people's portfolios. We've actually made good money with renewables. I think copper is one of the more fascinating ways to play that because of its essentiality in terms of the EV. Uh, you know, if we're going to have millions of new EVs on there, they're just, they use so much more copper than their traditional internal combustion engine vehicle. There are a lot of areas out there that actually look quite compelling. But just to reiterate, the problem is when you're going into a global recession, a lot of those things are by falling demand during a recessionary period. So I think one of the things I've said in our newsletter repeatedly is to buy, but buy slowly, keep huge cash reserves on hand. I really prefer government bonds, short-term government bonds, because these money market funds still pay almost nothing. I think that's certainly something your listeners could look at is, you know, where can I get a decent return? and still be highly liquid, as opposed to leaving it in the bank and almost nothing. And there are ETFs like SPST, which are short-term treasuries, where you're going to get the benefit of these rapidly rising short-term interest rates. SHY, SHY is another one that offers that as well. And you were saying, be more active. I absolutely agree with that. I think this is a time where traders are going to be rewarded. You know, if you're typically, you say, well, you know, they're the ones that the old saying is that investors drive Cadillacs and traders drive Chevrolets. But in this environment, I think a buy and hold doesn't work that great. I think you need to be willing to set a buy the dips, sell the rips, sell into these bear market rallies, which we had a, had several of this year. And we were pretty vocal about doing that. Take profits, reduce your exposure, and then buy into the panics. And I'm afraid we're on the cusp of kind of the mother of all panics, or at least the biggest panic that we've had since 2008. If we're going to be in an environment, again, getting back to your analogy of the 1970s, where the market really doesn't go anywhere for a long period of time, and in real terms, it actually goes down. But you could have made really good money in the 1970s if you did sell the rips back then and buy the dips. And I think that's the kind of scenario we're in right now. That was so great. I think that we will end it here today. But before I let you go, can you let the audience know where they can connect with you, learn more about you and everything that you do? We are, my brand name, so to speak, is Haymaker. So if you go to Haymaker at Substack, you can see us and we do write two free newsletters. So for your, your listeners that want to get free education, some of it's very market specific. And we actually put out trading recommendations on a regular basis. We have a model portfolio and we also, so that's on Monday, it's called Making Hay Mondays. When we do the Haymaker, which is more of a big picture kind of macro think type of uh, piece that we put out on Fridays, often with a guest author, many times from our friends at GovCal. So that's, again, we really encourage people to subscribe. You act, we can't do that for you. You have to go there and subscribe. But if you like free, it's there. 
And then as far as the Bubble 3.0, we have, uh, I think by the time this will be sent out to your listeners, we will have a, a site where you can actually buy the book in hard copy form. Right now, you can get the audiobook in Awesound, A-W-E-S-O-U-N-D. And the, uh, the code there for a discount is M-I-N-D-E-S-T-33. So, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.